Open your Bibles with me to Mark. I'll say some introductory remarks uh, after I read the passage, but let's read uh, the book of Mark first, and then, uh, and then, and then we'll get started here. Uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. It says, That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And, oh, it's really cool. Those two words in Greek, actually, the, 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 the uh, vernacular of the day would have been Jesus saying, Shut up. And stay shut up. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. In the message version, Eugene Peterson says, Then the sea became as smooth as glass. So picture this. Jesus, shut up. Stay shut up. And the sea became as smooth as glass. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? In Luke's version of the account, in Luke 8, he says, where is your faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? Well, that question has been posed a lot these days in regards to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is uh, very popular these days in the media, in pop culture, various other places. We actually live in a country where we use his name to swear. Sort of a backhanded compliment, I guess, to his cultural relevance for our world today, I guess, you know. Um, Jesus, if you go on YouTube, for example, and write Jesus and press search, you'll get 371,000 searches on YouTube. 371,000. Jesus is very relevant. But here's the, here's the dilemma. The dilemma is, uh, let me, let me uh, actually put something up here. Here's a phrase that was coined by a professor named Daryl Bach. Anybody ever heard of him? He wrote a book called Dethroning Jesus. Go to Amazon.com, type in Dethroning Jesus, and buy the book, okay? It's a scholarly perspective on pop culture's approach towards Jesus, written in a very... Uh, friendly way so we could read it okay here's what jesus 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 sanity is okay it's an ideology advocated in universities and in the media which depicts jesus of nazareth as a first century political radical which he sort of was an advocate for social justice which he was and a prophet of mystic wisdom but it explicitly denies any historical basis to the jesus of faith and the creeds. In other words, it denies any historical basis to the fact that he came to earth as a man, son of God, without being God, fully God, fully man, lived the life that we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and he rose again on third day. 
Now, the reason why this is important is because this is kind of an academic, scholarly perspective towards what's going on in our culture, but the reality is our culture has either the wrong perspective of Jesus or a misleading perspective of Jesus. And here's why this is important. Without Jesus, there is no Christianity to speak of. More importantly, a wrong picture of Jesus, and you have the wrong picture of Christianity. And my contention is that many of us who are Christians have a wrong perspective of Jesus, and therefore, we have a wrong perspective on Christian faith. Two things as we continue this series, Rediscovering Jesus, A Journey Through the Gospels. Number one is this. My opinions about Jesus don't matter at all. Your opinions about Jesus at the end of the day don't really matter at all. What what do I mean? The only way to get down to the bottom and root of who Jesus is is we have to go back to the Bible to the people who knew him or to the people who knew those who knew him. We have to get to a place where our opinions, what we grew up with, what our youth pastors taught, what our churches taught, we have to be able to kind of sort through all of that and get to the bottom of what the gospel writers say who Jesus is. And for some of us, as we do that, he is a picture of someone who is going to be very different to what we imagined when we envisioned growing up. We need to take a hard look at who Jesus is. Uh, Second thing is this, and this is maybe more important, more practical. Uh, When we take a look at Jesus and see what the gospel writers have to say about Jesus, here's what we're going to realize, okay? That many of us are in what, said this last year when we preached it, a spiritual middle. We're sort of in a a, a spiritual middle, and, and the gospel writer's picture of Jesus is when you meet him, he'll knock you off that spiritual middle. The gospel writers say, I did this last year, I said this last year, say that if you really look at Jesus, you will find the offensiveness of Jesus. Secondly, if you take a hard look at Jesus, your response will not be what our culture is. I admire him. Boy, he was a good man. He was a nice guy. Did some great things. Said some wonderful things. He is certainly to be respected. As C.S. Lewis said, and I'm going to go back to this quote over and over again, if you really, really see who Jesus is, your response will be either you'll hate him or you'll fear him or you'll fall down and worship and give your entire all. There is nothing in the middle. If you really see who Jesus is, a lukewarm, tepid response of, he's a nice guy. He's, I really like him. And, and can I just say one other thing? Can I pick on those of you guys that say, you know, I really don't like the church, but I like Jesus. Okay, I'm not going to defend the church. I'm not even going to defend our church because church is jacked up, frankly, okay? Lots of issues. But please don't be so quick to say that you like this Jesus. Do you know who he is? Do you know this Jesus? Have you really seen him? Because if you did, I think you'd think twice before saying, I really don't like the church and I read Jesus. Woo. I don't know about him. Next time somebody says something kind of silly like that, go, oh, you, like, you don't like the church, but you like do you, do, do you know who this Jesus is? Do you know what he said? You know, do, you know what he, do you know what he did? Because then we wouldn't be so quick to say, I really like him. Really? I don't think so. It's a high compliment to say somebody has no enemies. 
You could never say that about Jesus. He had lots of enemies. Why? Because they saw him for who he was. Most of us, deadly spiritual middle. Deadly spiritual middle. And Jesus wants to come knock you off of that and go in. Either hate me or fear me or worship me with your all. No other choice. We begin our journey today. We're going to be looking at Mark a lot. And this story is familiar. How many of you guys are sermons on this passage? I have a confession. You ready? I'm such a bad, hypocritical, judgmental person, okay? Because here's the thing. I sat there, and the preachers would normally go, Jesus is there with you through the storms. When the storms come into your life, he is with you, and he'll be there for you. And I sit there, roll my eyes, and go, blah, blah, blah. Jesus storms. Can't you get any deeper? And I just used to be so critical for nothing. You know what I mean? I just go, what, what is, and, and I really came to realize that that's the essence of what this passage means. So for those of you that are sitting there, so those of you that are sitting there going, oh, Jesus. But, but here's the thing though, here's the thing. I don't think we really take, we've really taken, let, let me get, I don't think we've really taken a look at Jesus. Because if we did, we did, we'll respond the way the disciples did. They were scared in the storm. But then they were terrified after. They're scared in the storm. Think about this now, okay? Think about it. I'm going through trials. I'm going through storms. Part of the whole thing about, and Jesus, Jesus is saying, you're scared right now in your storm? You may be terrified after. I thought I'd come to church to feel good. What the heck is this? If you really see what Jesus says, you will. Okay, let's get into it. Power miracles, power miracles. There's three, four power miracles right here at one succession after another after this passage. And these power miracles reveal the truth of who Jesus is. And there's a theological implication. And of course, there's a practical implication. First is this. This passage teaches us the reality of uh, his power. In the storm. The reality of his power. In other words, this tells us that this is not a legend. Why is that important? Buy the book, dethroning Jesus, and read it. Why is that important? Because here it is. Most people look at passages like this and look at other miracles in the Gospels and say, that's a legend. It's a made-up story. We can't really believe that really happened. People that really wanted to kind of propagate, Jesus wrote that, and, and so on and so forth. Here are three reasons why that is not the case and why it's, it's completely acceptable to believe that this really happened. First of all, okay, those of you who have taken notes, number one, the timing is too early to be a legend. The timing of this is too early to be a legend. What do I mean? The book of Mark, and also Luke, was written 30 or 40 years after Jesus, a generation after, Okay? Most scholars believe that's when those books were written. Why is it important? In order to facilitate the legend, you wait until like a couple hundred years after for whatever it happened. Why? Because if you say that something happened, really for real, you don't write it and circulate it when the people that were actually there to witness it are still alive. Make sense? You don't go around going, Jesus walked on water, and somebody goes, what? That's crap. I was there. That never happened. Jesus fed thousands with five loaves of bread and two fish. What? What are you talking about? That's nonsense. I was there. 30 to 40 years. Why is this important? 
Because it gives credibility to the factual reality that this really happened. Timing, too early. Secondly, the content is too counterproductive for it to be a legend. Think about it. If you want to start a movement that Jesus is the Son of God who is bringing salvation into the world, why include in your writings things like, on the cross he cried out, why are you forsaking me, God? Why put that in there? Secondly, why say that in Gethsemane he says, let the cup pass from me, God, but not my will, yours. Let the cup pass? Doesn't sound very legendary. Why put that in there? And most importantly, the people who witnessed the the resurrection, the first eyewitnesses to report it, are women. Why is that important? Their testimony wasn't even allowed in court. They were on part culturally, as far as credibility goes, with children. This is the kind of culture that they lived in. And yet the gospel writers say, the women saw it first and reported it. They women. Culture would have been offensive to the first century hearers. The content is too counterproductive. And the third, and of course, I I just totally ripped this portion out from somebody else because I'm nowhere near this smart. Uh, The literary form is too detailed to be a legend. What do I mean? You notice the gospel? Look, look, look. This story is incredibly vivid. It's compact. This story right here is only 150 words, and, and yet it has details like this. The other boat went with him. The evening came. Jesus slept on a cushion. And the cushion was used by people who didn't fish. Like, what? And you read other, like John 21, the disciples caught 153 fish. Let me just show you, you know what this is like? This is like Greek mythology and somebody writing, and Zeus got up and ate Cheerios for breakfast. <laughs> what? And he wore the long, so what? You sit there going, who cares? In other words, legends were not written that way back then. C.S. Lewis. By the way, you know, I quote C.S. Lewis a lot. You guys think I'm like smart. Read C.S. You know, it takes me like 30 minutes to read 10 pages of C.S. Lewis. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody else dumb like me? I sit there and go, what the heck was that? Just rent the movie. Just rent the movie. It's a lot easier, right? Okay. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. By the way, is this helpful to anybody? I hope so. Look, look what it says. I've been reading poems, C.S. Lewis, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. And you know he did. I know what they're like. I know none of them are like this, meaning the New Testament Gospels. Of this Gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage or somebody reporting what really happened or else some unknown ancient writer without knowing any predecessors predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. He's basically saying, for anybody who says, oh, it's a legend, he's saying, look, that art form of writing narrative fiction is only about 400 years old. So for someone to write like this, 153 fish. He slept on a kiss. Who can? They just didn't write legends like that. Why is it there? It happened. It really did. Now, why is this important? Number one, if you are somebody who says that you don't believe in the miracles of Jesus and that these stories are sort of made up, I beg to defer. Fact historically says you're wrong. This is just not how stories 
legends, if you will, written. It's reportage of actual facts. But this is more important for another reason, okay, for those of us. Here's the thing. You will go through, <laughs> I'm sorry, because I used to hear this and I go, <sighs> you will go through storms in life. Oh, jeez, storms in life. You will go through storms in life. But here's the thing, you ready? When you do, you're going to need to believe that this actually happened. When all hell breaks loose and all, I can't say the word crap, right? Okay, when all, whatever, hits the fan. (laughs) When everything is just going haywire, listen, 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 listen. When you, some of you are going through some unbelievable things right now unbelievable things right now and what will get you through that is you need to be able to look at this Jesus and say he did that he did that and it's true and it's true he did that this is so this is not just an academic point I'm taking notes because this scholar you will need this practically in your life or else you will not Some of you are there today. All I'm trying to do is to try to show you this Jesus who said, shut up, stay shut up. And the sea became as smooth as glass. Let's see the magnitude of his power, okay? Uh, I've already given all this to you guys, but look, think about this, okay? Uh, Historians say that that, that storms in this area, this region, were very common because of where where the sea is located and the mountains and all that stuff, which I don't want to get into. But here's the important thing, is that these people that are in the boat are fishermen. They're sailors. People that are in the boat are people who are accustomed to these storms. They've seen it, and yet they're scared to death. That shows you the magnitude and the power of this storm. This ain't little, you know, this is a powerful, powerful storm that these folks, I've never seen anything like this. And what does Jesus do? This is the, he's sleeping on a cushion that, by the way, people who didn't fish slept on, okay? He's sleeping on a cushion. The disciples come to him and they irritate him. And I'll tell you why he's irritated a little bit later, okay? They so get up and, and they say to him, don't you care? By the way, that's very irritating to Jesus. And I'll tell you guys why later, okay? Don't you care that we're going to jump? Jesus gets up, and I could just see him going, shut up. Stay shut up. I don't see Jesus getting up and going, you know, oh, Charlton Heston on the storm, you know what I mean? You know, got the th- I, don't, I don't see him doing that. I don't, I don't see him doing that. Do you? Do you? You know, it's not Jesus. It's not like, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't do it. He, he just basically gets up, he lifts his pinky, and he just says, shut up. There's no posturing, you know. There's no, like, some of us, when we want to pray, we're like, oh, Lord. We, like, work ourselves up into this frenzy, like, oh, okay, wait, hold on a minute. Oh, we, he just simply comes. He just simply comes, and he says, shut up, say shut up. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. And this is why the Bible says this. He rebukes the wind and the waves. And the wind stops, and the waves become as smooth as glass. Why is that important? Because the wind could have stopped coincidentally, accidentally, you know? And the sea could have raged. You've, you guys have seen that. Storms come, the wind stops. But what happens? And then instantly, the wind stops, and the sea becomes as smooth as glass. Do you realize that it's this Jesus that you have invited into your heart? but he's my friend. Yeah, he is. 
but he's my, you know, companion. Yeah, he is. But the person that lives inside your heart is a person who is so big, so large, so powerful. He says, shut up. Stay shut up. And all of creation responds. Is this somebody you invite into your life to be your personal assistant? Is this the kind of person you invite into your life to uh, be your helper? Is this so big, so large, so powerful, person who says, shut up and stay shut up, and all of creation listens? Is this somebody that you invite into your life and you say things like, you know, I need to make more room in my life for Jesus? He doesn't conform to your plans. You conform to his. He doesn't exist to fulfill your wishes and your whims. We exist to worship him and give our all. If he is who he says he is, it is absolutely ludicrous for us to treat him like he is some sort of a personal assistant that we go to when we're in need. Do you realize who it is that you have invited into your life? Do you see why Jesus says, so many of you are in the deadly spiritual middle? Because when he comes, look, I'm fond of saying that when Jesus comes into your life, he wrecks our lives. And some people go, oh, that's why I don't want to be a Christian. He wrecks. Here's what I mean. When you're used to sitting on the throne of your life and being king and a small G God, And Jesus comes in and says, excuse me, get out of that chair. You know what that feels like? It'll feel like your life is being wrecked. When you're in control of your life and you try and manage, even though we're terrible at being in control, right? Control freaks, can we just be honest, right? It takes a flat tire or a bad argument for us to go, ah! (laughs) We think we're in control. We like to be in control. And Jesus Christ comes and says, you've never been in control. You're terrible at being in control. Let me be in charge. That feels like your life is being wrecked. But if you are somebody who's sitting there and you feel like your life is being wrecked because Jesus is really who he is in your life, sit there. You're in a great place. Until you have met this Jesus who will knock you off from the deadly middle, you may not have ever met him. Can we stop saying things like, I need to make more room in my life for Jesus? That's silly. Come on, that's silly. Do you know what I mean? Either say, I hate you, I want nothing to do with you, which I'll talk about next week. Or he says, every fiber of your being is mine. There's an encouragement though. You ready? You know what the encouragement is? By the way, is that encouraging to anybody, that truth? I hope so, because you know what? I'm tired of being my own God. I'm tired of trying to be my own master of the universe. That's wearing, you know what I mean? I mean, I like to think I'm all that, but boy, that just gets tiresome, you know? That just gets tiresome. And so it it comes as a huge relief to go, you do it, you take it, I'm done. I'm done. The encouragement is this. The sea, the sea throughout the Old Testament. Does anybody know this? Do you know that the sea... Throughout the Old Testament, a symbol of chaos and evil. Did you know that? 
The sea in the Old Testament is a symbol of chaos and evil. Look at this. Job chapter 9, verse 8. I wonder if the passage will be up there. It says, He alone stretched out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. If you're taking notes, that word sea in Hebrew is literally yama. Yama. Everybody say yama. No, not yama. 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 And you know what, the, you know what yam was? Yam was. Yam was the, the chaos sea monster in ancient Canaan myth. It was a mythic creature that the Canaanites worshipped and feared. Yam. And literally that word is found throughout the Old Testament as sea. For, for the Hebrew people, in other words, yam, sea, is the chaos monster. How cool is this? Because you and I have uh, chaos monsters in our lives. It's the source of our fears. It's the source of our anxiety. Just talked to somebody uh, yesterday. Met with a young man in our church who's in some ministry working with really hard kids and his life is being threatened physically by giving his life to some youth in this community in the city of Chicago. And he was honest in sharing that he's scared to death, absolutely scared to death for his life, for his family. Chaos monster, yum. How powerful is, because his disciples know, how powerful is this to see Jesus stand looking at yum, chaos monster, and saying, Shut up and stay shut up. You know why this is encouraging? Jesus not only conquers evil and injustice, he says, I come and conquer your fears. I come and conquer your anxiety. I come and conquer that thing that is a source of worry, fear, and anxiety in your life. Let me just say, have you become cynical? You need to take a look at this Jesus who says, shut up, stay shut up. Have you placed any limitations on you? Anybody sitting here discouraged going, I'm never going to change. This habit, this sin, I'm never going to change. You need to take a fresh look at this Jesus who comes and says, shut up, stay shut up. Anybody who's looking at people in your life and you know who they are saying, they're never going to change. They're never going to change. They're never going to change. And little do we know that other people are looking at us and going, they're never going to change. They're never going to change. They're never going to change. We're looking at them going, there's no hope. They're going, there's no hope. We need to meet with that person and saying, we worship a Jesus who says, shut up. Stay shut up. And it obeys. What are you afraid of? What are you insecure about? What have you become? Oh, Can I talk to you cynical people, cynical folks? Heart has become hardened. A cynical Christian is an oxymoron. A cynical Christian is an oxymoron. Those two words should not go together. Have you stopped believing? Have you stopped enduring? Have you stopped hoping? Take a fresh look at this Jesus who stands on the sea and says, Shut up. Stay. Has your heart become cynical? You need to go home today and repent of your cynicism and say, Jesus, let me see you afresh, anew. What is impossible with you? Look at this passage, Psalm 89, 9. Oh, Lord God Almighty, who is like you? Some of you guys need to memorize this. Make this your memory verse for the week. I guarantee you, it'll bring power and life into your life as God encourages you. You are mighty, oh, Lord, 
and your faithfulness around you. You rule over the surging sea. Everybody say that with me. Ready? You rule over the surging sea. One more time. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Is that encouraging? Okay. Let's get to this business of the disciples' response. Because I got so excited to share this with you. I got so excited to share this Look, look, look. look. Look at carefully in verse 37, okay? Go back. We see that the disciples are afraid. Jesus says, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid, right? They think they're drowning. I'd be afraid. They think they're dying. I'd be afraid. But look at what happens when Jesus calmed the storm. Everybody, are you checking? I said this earlier. When Jesus calms the storm, did they go from being afraid to, whoo-hoo, that's great. Did they go from being fearful and anxious to all of a sudden, peace in my soul. What happened to them? They went from being fearful to what? Terrified. Why? First, they're in the presence of the storm's power. It's pretty big power, and they're afraid. But they realize all of a sudden after that they find themselves in the presence of of someone from another world. It's how Moses responded when he hit the deck, seeing the glory of God. It's how Job responded. It's how Isaiah responded. They're in the presence of God. (laughs) I've said this before. You know what I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to one day in worship on Sunday when God's presence will be so powerful and manifest here Our response won't be, thank you, which will be a good response too. But we will all hit the deck. Because his holy presence is so thick. That's how they responded. Uh, Practical? I love this. See if you can follow, right? Sometimes God's solution to your problems will seem more terrifying than the actual problem was. Work it, work it, Mike. Okay, work it. <laughs> I got me a black church this morning. Okay, okay, here we go, here we go. You track it? Okay, I'm going to preach. Listen, <laughs> listen, this is, okay, and also, sometimes. The help that God gives through your problems will seem more terrifying than your actual problem. Let me put it another way. Ready? Sometimes what God will put you through to get you out of your problems will be 10,000 times scarier than your actual problems. So the black people in our church are going, ha-ha, I'm following you. And then some of us are going, what the heck? What? 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 You know why we're terrified in the storms? Because when we go to Jesus, Jesus might say, that storm is nothing. What I'm going to use to get you out of this storm is going to be even scarier. Why? Jesus says to them, where is your faith? And he goes after them. Why? Jesus told a little parable in Matthew 7 about two people who built two houses. One built their house on sand. The other built their house on rock. Storms come. 
Waves mount up. Weather gets really bad. The person who built their house on sand crumbles, disintegrates, nothing left. But the person who builds their house on the rock stands. Why is Jesus going after them? Let me just be very practical. If you love somebody, if you love somebody and a storm comes into that relationship, you lose that person, they dump you or you break up, it'll hurt. You'll be hurt for a while. It'll take weeks to heal. But if you have found your entire identity, significance, worth on that person, a storm in that area will destroy you. It will destroy you. You like your career? You like what you do? Storm in that relation, storm in that, whether it be you lose your job, get demoted, it'll hurt. It'll impact you. You'll be like, ah, oh, that really stinks. And it'll sing for a while. But if you have built your entire identity on I am successful on my career, storm in that area will destroy you. Where is your faith? The storm that comes into your life to get you out of your problem, Jesus says, is it's going to be scary. Does that make sense? What are you building your life on? What are you building your life on? Some of you guys in here, let me just pick on some of you. Some of you in here, you know what your foundation was? Your foundation was your morality. You grew up in a nice Christian home. You stayed out of trouble, but that became the source of your identity. I'm a good person. I... And then you found yourself in a situation, life of sin, compromise, that you never ever thought you would find yourself in. And it didn't lead to repentance and coming back to the Lord. It led to disintegration of your identity and saying, I'm the worst person in the world. It's not even true. Some of you, family. Your family. If you love your family and something happens to our family, it'll hurt. We'll be disappointed. We'll be discouraged. It'll be hard. But if our family is who we find our entire identity, meaning in anything that happens to our family, will utterly, utterly destroy you. Where is your faith? Jesus comes to them and says, the reason why you're terrified is, what did you believe? Where's your foundation? What are you building your life? Church, 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 church. What are you building your life on? Where is your foundation? Where is the source of your identity, your significance, and your worth? Is it the work of Christ Jesus in your life in such a way that he is your significance? He is your identity. The one who says, shut up and stay shut up and comes to see. Or is your identity in your career, in that relationship, in you, what you've achieved, what you've gained? As I was preparing this message this whole week, I struggled about God Do I share this? Do I not? Do I share this? Do I not? Do I share this? Do I not? And I still don't know. I'm going to make up my mind like in three seconds. (laughs) When I was 22 years old, when I was 22 years old, ministry and my abilities as a pastor was my God. It became my entire identity. I love people saying, you're a great pastor, blah, 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 you know, God's going to use you, blah, 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 loved it, loved it. Outside, I'd be like, no, 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 glory to God, glory to God. 
you know. <laughs> Little did they know, my thumb was pointing at me, you know, going, glory to God, you know. <laughs> at the same time, I was working as a youth pastor at a church. And I fell head over heels for a girl that was in my youth group. Which is a big no-no. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. The church leaders came and said, by the way, I've never shared this in our church ever, ever, in six years. Church leader pastor basically came and said, that's not cool. You shouldn't date your youth group kids. Duh, you know. <laughs> so if you're a pastor, you shouldn't date your congregants. You know what I mean? Quit your job, and then if you want to date, so on and so forth. I was like, no, 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 you know. She's old enough, blah, blah, blah. Didn't matter. There's ethics and ministry, integrity and ministry. I told them up front that I would obey, I would listen. Two months later, I went right back, and we had this secret relationship behind the backs of all the leaders in the church. Finally, the leaders confronted me and uh, basically said, you either need to resign or we'll fire you. And they basically also said, you need to do it quietly in such a way that nobody in the church will know. We'll just tell them you just decided to quit. I packed one duffel bag and flew out to California Some of you guys have heard that I was in California for a year. I was in California for a year working for YOM Youth with the Mission on staff for a year. I cried every night for three months. You know what I did when I initially went out there? I painted houses. Because, you know, they're going... And who are you? <laughs> I'm Peter Hong. I'm this phenomenal, whatever. Here's a paint can. Go paint some houses, you know. That was basically what it was, you know. I mowed the lawn. I did manual labor nine, ten hours a day. And I remember one vivid night, I'm walking on this, on the campus where the premise was. I was so angry at God, saying, God, Why? And I did the whole, don't you care, don't you care. And it was very simple and yet clear. And God came and says, why are you feeling meaningless? And I was going, damn right, I feel meaningless. Why? And he says, it's because the entire thing that you've built meaning out of life in is gone. Of course you're going to feel meaningless. And the two things, a relationship and ministry that I had built my entire foundation on was gone in a smoke. And I found myself completely identityless, self-esteem valueless, completely alone, walking by myself at 2 o'clock in the morning at night going, I know a little something about building my identity and my life on something that will never last. And my question to you, church, before we move on to the last point, is what are you building your life on? Is it sustainable? Is it going to last? Do you realize that the storms that are in your life right now might be God's way of saying, why are you building your life on that? 
Let's go on to the last point and we'll wrap this up. Uh, We see the compatibility of storms with God's redeeming love. We see the compatibility of storms with God's redeeming love. Can I just just say something? If your premise is wrong, your conclusions will be wrong. Can I say that? If your premise is wrong, your conclusion will be wrong. So if your premise is, God, if you love me, you won't put me through hard times in life. Then when something happens, your conclusions are going to be wrong. In other words, God, if you love me, you'll stop this. If you love me, you won't send this into my life. If you're truly a good, loving God, then this won't. If that's our premise, then our conclusions will be wrong. For many of us, our premises are wrong. Our premise says this, God's redeeming love can't possibly be compatible with hard things, disappointing things, hugely, hugely uh, tragic things happening in my life. And yet scripture says over and over again, God's redeeming love is completely compatible with terrible things, with tragic things. God's redeeming love is completely compatible with hard things happening in your life. In other words, Jesus' love for you is completely compatible with you sinking. Jesus' love for you is completely compatible with you sinking. They come to Jesus and they say, Master, do something. Master, do something. And they say, don't you care? And and you know what? If you're listening, you're on very familiar emotional terrain as disciples because we've been there. We have said that. Don't you care? And essentially what they're saying is, Lord, we thought that if we were in the boat with you, you were in the boat with us, we may go through little storms, little things, but not big things like this where I feel like my life is falling apart and I feel meaningless. And what they're saying is not just do something, but they're essentially saying, if you care, you would not let this happen. And if you let this happen, you don't care. If you love me, you wouldn't let this happen. Since you're letting this happen, you don't love me. Has anybody been there? Here's the thing I find interesting about Jesus. After he rebukes the wind and the waves, he rebukes them. You know why? I'm learning this as a parent. Parker's three. There's going to come a day when I'm going to cross his will. One time. And he's going to do the whole look, tears, and all the way from, you just don't care, or you don't love me, or God forbid, I hate you. One of those, right? Pick anyone. And as a parent, when that happens, is that the time to be sympathetic? (laughs) Is that time to look at my son and go, I know, son. understand I understand you're hurt as a parent you know I'm gonna look at him three years old but he's very smart I'm gonna look at him and go do you know what I have done for you do you know the sacrifice the sacrifice the sac- I can't remember the last time I slept in my <laughs> wife would say not me do you know everything that I have done for you and in you, for you? I've given up. I've changed my entire life, my schedule. I have sacrificed all this for you. And if you say to me, because I've crossed your world once, I will not give that one thing to you. I will not give that one person to you. I will not let that one thing happen. By that you conclude that I don't care or love you at all. Then my son, you don't understand my love for you. That's not a time to be sympathetic. That's a time as your, as your loving father to say, my child, I feel used. Do you know why Jesus is firm with us? 
He's so gentle with the adulterer, woman at the well. He's so, adult, he's so gentle with tax collectors. He's so gentle. And yet when one of his children is saying, as a Christian, I don't deserve hard, tragic things. As a Christian, I reject, I, am ba- I feel mad that this is happening to me. Your heavenly father says, I've given you all. And because of this one thing, you know how we get out of this? Let me just end here. Do you know how we, 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 we get out? Do you know how we can become, do you know how we go through storms in life? Well, as always, I'm going to end with the gospel. Is that okay? Always I'm going to end with the gospel. Do you know why? When they say, don't you care? You know what I think Jesus was going to say to them? He was going to say, don't you care that I drowned? Don't you care that I went through the ultimate storm, the storm of God's justice, The ultimate storm of bearing on me, my shoulders, the sins, the wickedness, the evil, the injustice of the entire world on my shoulders. Don't you care that I went through that storm for you? Don't you care that I went through the ultimate furnace, Daniel chapter 5, the ultimate furnace of God's wrath and justice for all the injustice and evil wickedness in the world so that when you go through the smaller furnaces in your life, you would have the assurance that I will not abandon you that i will walk with you think about it think about it is what jesus is saying think and focus if i did not abandon you through the worst storm that i have ever faced in all of history what makes you think that i will abandon you now in the tiny little storm that you are going through he was abandoned so that you and i would never be he was rejected so that we would never be He died so that we would live. Jesus saying, think and focus in the midst of your storms before you say, don't you care? Realize the cross is a declaration of us eternal love for you saying, I care, I care, I care. Let me put it this way. For anybody who wants to come and say, God's redeeming love is incompatible with tragic things, bad things happening in my life, the ultimate tragedy, the ultimate bad thing, the ultimate injustice in the world, the Son of God on the cross led to the salvation and redemption of the whole world. The ultimate tragedy, the ultimate sadness, the ultimate injustice, the ultimate bad thing happening to somebody resulted in forgiveness and salvation and reconciliation and renewal for you, for me, and the whole world. How dare you say that God's redeeming love is incompatible with tragic things? God's redeeming love was displayed through the most tragic thing in the history of the world. So when you sit there and go, is there any good to this, Jesus? says, Think on the cross. Did any good come out of that? Is there any use to this? Think on the cross. Did any good come out of that? Are you tracking? That is. You know what, guys? I talked to a number of people this week who are going through some unbelievably hard things. In light of my years and pastoral experience in ministry, here's what I've come to realize. We're going to end with this. Here's what I've come to realize. I think sometimes the most loving thing that God can do is to allow us or put us 
through various storms in life because it's in that moment that we become most hypersensitive to God. Anybody been there? That it's during those times when God doesn't have to say pray. Oh, you're praying all day long. God doesn't have to say, read your Bible, do devotions. Every day, all day is devotions. Because it's during those times that God reveals our hearts and where our hearts are centered on, what our priorities are, what our values are. And perhaps through that time, we come to realize the most important thing that lies at the essence of Christianity, and that is because of what Christ did. All that you need, all that you need is God. And until God is the only thing that you have, you may not come to realize that he is all that you need. Until you've come to a place where you say, God, I have nothing else, we may never come to that place of saying, you are all that I need. You and I are built in such a way that we'll never learn about our faults by being told. Come on, your mom's been telling you about your faults all your life. Does it work? No. You know why? You have to be shown. Life has to show you what your faults are. Life has to show you where you're weak. Life has to show you where you're indifferent. Life has to show you in the same way. Nobody has ever learned about God's redeeming love by being told. How do I know? I tell you every stinking Sunday, and you walk out of here going, nah, that was all right. (laughs) You have to be shown. And for some of you, the only way that you will know of God's redeeming love for you It's going through over and over and over and over and over again. Times in your life where you say, God, do you care? Do you see? Are you with me? Only to see God come through again and again and again and again. For him to show you that even in the midst of our anger, even in the midst of our worries, even in the midst of our rebellion, that our Heavenly Father never for once, never for once leaves us, never for once forsakes us. And 16 years after that, 22-year-old stupid young mistake, I'm learning every day that I learn about God's love, not by being told, but by him showing me. I know today that there are many of you that are hurting And I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. Let's pray together. God, I pray for anyone out there today facing and encountering devastating storms in their lives. 
Lord, first I pray for courage, courage to go to you and ask, God, is there something more profound and important? Is there something that I have built my life on? Show me what that is. Show me what that is. And then I pray for courage and strength to cry out to the one who calms the seas and stills the storm who has shouted to all of humanity through the cross I love you I love you In a moment, the worship team is going to lead us to a time of prayer and response. While they're doing that, we're so accustomed just to sitting in our seats, but if the Spirit is prompting you, get up out of your seat, come. There's not a lot of space, but put yourself, throw yourself, bow and worship, cling to the cross, grab onto the cross as a reminder to who He is and what He has done for you. Don't just sit there in your comfort. Come up. Grab hold of the cross, bow down, kneel down, and worship your Savior who hears you, who listens to you, who is with you, who is for you, who has given you his all. And then I'll bring us together and we'll pray and close out. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. 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 God, I thank you so much, Lord, for the truth of those words. You are unshakable foundation, the one who exalted on high, the one who rules over all the heavens and all the earth. As we leave this place today, may we leave with boldness, with faith, with endurance, and with hope. Knowing, God, that you, Jesus, are with us and for us and working in and through us. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, as you leave today, I want to encourage you. This sermon series is for those who are not Christians as much as it is for those who are. I want you to prayerfully invite your family and your friends who need to hear about this Jesus. Think also on your Christian friends who've left the church because they've become disillusioned with this Jesus that God might speak to them. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next Sunday, church. Take care.